Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the Executive Director of Creating a Family. And in case you didn't know, we have a website where you can find tons of medically accurate, expert-based information on all things infertility, as well as adoption and foster. Today, we're going to be talking about what to eat to increase your odds of success with IVF. We are beginning a brand new year, and I, for one, could not be happier to say goodbye to the old one. We're also coming off holiday season, and no matter how different this holiday season has been for you, it likely involves time for you to think about what it is that you can do personally to improve your odds that you will get pregnant this year. I want you to remember that infertility is a disease, and honestly, no amount Often, no amount of tinkering with lifestyle and food choices will be effective without medical intervention or medical treatment. But there are changes that you can make that will improve your odds. And while, honestly, much of what you read on the internet is not based in science and is often really no more than wishful thinking or worse, slick marketing junk, today we're going to be sharing with you information on foods that's based in hard, real science. What foods and supplements help to improve your fertility for those trying to conceive naturally, as well as for those undergoing fertility treatment. We will talk with Dr. Jose Shavara. He is an associate professor of nutrition and epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health and Medicine at Harvard Medical School. And he's based his whole career on focusing on understanding how nutrition and lifestyle impact fertility. And he is the principal investigator of a study you've, if you've been listening here for much time at all, you will have heard us mention, because a lot of the good research that is available on nutrition and fertility, well, quite frankly, nutrition and disease in general, comes from this study and he, that he's the principal investigator of. It is the Nurses Health Study Number 3. It is an ongoing prospective study of young professional women that started way back in 2010 gosh, that's what, 11 years ago, and it's designed to investigate the role of lifestyle and biological factors on women's health in general, of which part of that is fertility, and that is an area that that Dr. Shafaro has specific interest in. He also leads the nutritional component of another study called the Earth Study. We haven't mentioned it as much here, but it is also an ongoing perspective look at couples undergoing fertility treatment and uh, trying to see what works and what doesn't work. And Dr. Shavaro is the uh, investigator of nutrition and lifestyle issues and how that impacts the fertility. This was one of the most popular shows from last year. So we thought we would bring it back to you again to start this new year off right. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Welcome Dr. Shavaro to Creating a Family. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me today, Don. This is a topic of, well, of personal great interest. I am fascinated by it, but it's also a topic of interest to uh, both patients and and nurses and and other medical professionals. So uh, we will just dive right in. All right. I'd like to start in part one with talking about how does nutrition impact fertility? We know that women are born with all the eggs that they're ever going to have. So how does nutrition impact female fertility and egg quality? It seems like the most important nutrition would be those of, the, uh, those of our mothers when we were being gestated. But, uh, so why is it important after the fact? Well, uh, you're correct that uh, a woman's uh, ovarian reserve is essentially determined in utero and uh, all the eggs that you're going to have, that has already happened. However, that doesn't mean that the quality of any individual egg uh, uh, is determined at birth already, or that we're not uh, uh, women ovulate in any one particular cycle is also determined at birth. There are many other things that influence uh, uh, the uh, regularity of menstrual cycles throughout a life and the regularity of ovulation, as well as the quality of individual eggs throughout uh, a woman's life. And that's where nutrition uh, plays a role. And uh, that's uh, nutrition is, is really a very broadly defined uh, exposure. It, there's no one thing that nutrition is. And we have known some as how some aspects of nutrition impact fertility for a very long time, starting with uh, body weight and, and exercise on the 
which are kind of the, the opposing ends of, of energy balance. Um, but over the last decade or so, we have also gained an enormous amount of understanding about how the quality of diet may also impact fertility. And let's not forget that uh, uh, reproduction is a team sport. So yes, women are the ones who do get pregnant, but uh, at, until, until we figure out a different way to do it, we still need men for reproduction. So, uh, and, and men's and spermatogenesis is a much more active um, uh, phenomenon. How soon, how, how often do we, trans, will a man produce a completely new set of sperm? Uh, about every three months. So every, about every three months, there's a completely new set of sperm that are uh, being created. So it is a much, much more active process, much more, um, and, and therefore much more susceptible for intervention and much more susceptible to external environmental cues. Okay, so if a woman is wanting to impact the quality of, of her eggs as well as her general fertility, how far in advance would she need to change her diet? Um, it depends. So it depends what, what we're talking about. And there's actually not a lot of clarity on that one particular point on, on how soon do I need to be doing things. Um, so the way I like to, I like to uh, uh, think about nutrition and reproduction is, is try to break it down into what are the big things that we have a lot of information about and we're fairly confident on them. And more the some of the things where we are just gathering information and there's less confidence on those. So the, uh, on the things that we know a whole lot about, uh, the first one is definitely the, the impact of, of body weight. We've known that for decades. And we, just, we have just gotten um, a much better and more refined understanding of how uh, weight um, impacts fertility. So the, the earliest studies on weight and fertility date back to the 1970s. And we're looking at extremes, mostly uh, at uh, very low body weights associated with uh, extreme levels of exercise uh, and how they impacted um, ovulation and, um, and, and, uh, and menstrual cycle regularity. Um, and from that, we know that both being underweight uh, but also being over and obese, which was evidence that was gathered a few months later, a few years later, um, are not that good in terms of, of ovulation. We want to be somewhere in the middle. Now, what does that mean in terms, if, if you happen to be on one of the extremes, like if, you, if you're either uh, lean or overweight, how soon do you, uh, do you need to start uh, changing weight, either gaining weight or losing weight, if you're trying to, um, to start a family. And those are effects that are relatively quick, right? So within a few months, uh, you can start seeing uh, a regulation of, of ovulation of um, resumption of normal menses in case uh, you, uh, that menses had been interrupted. And uh, in many cases, resumption of fertility. And where that has been uh, documented the best is among women with polycystic ovary syndrome where we know that weight loss actually improves uh, uh, leads to resumption of, of uh, menses and improves fertility. Where that does not seem to be the case, however, is among women who are undergoing assisted reproduction. Uh, so the, there have been, uh, for the longest time, uh, based on the, on the studies among women who are trying to get pregnant on their own, the assumption had been that um, women who are undergoing infertility treatment who are overweight or obese would also benefit from losing weight immediately before treatment. However, in the past uh, three or four years, there have been two randomized trials testing this, this specific hypothesis, uh, asking women who are overweight to lose weight immediately before starting infertility treatment. And what both trials found is that um, even though there's an improvement in um, in spontaneous pregnancies, meaning women who were having fertility problems and lose weight and, and are trying on their own, uh, were scheduled for assisted reproduction and uh, started trying on their own, some of them do get pregnant. But women who actually make it to fertility treatment do not benefit from losing weight immediately after infertility treatment. Why? Do we know, do we have a theory as to why? So I, I think that by the, um, 
the fertility amyloid assisted reproduction is such an intense intervention that um, the, 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 the benefit of um, weight loss is probably weakened given the, the, how intense the intervention is. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that um, you, so if you think about it, losing weight is uh, closer to going into starvation mode, right? Than, uh, than, than other, in terms of the reproductive access, than, than other things. So yes, you do, improve, you do get some metabolic improvements, right? So your, your blood glucose and your lipids are gonna get better, but the message your brain is getting in terms of reproduction is um, there is a shortage of food. Mm-hmm. It's probably not the best time to be to trying to get pregnant, and um, and and therefore it is possible that um, when if if you need to lose weight for uh, assisted reproduction, uh, you probably need to do this way ahead of time. It's not not just two or three months before, as these trials have done. But it is possible that that if weight loss is effective uh, for some women, it is a weight loss that happens years before starting treatment when people are not even thinking that they're going to be needing treatment. So it's it becomes kind of a catch twenty two. And for for practical implications, it's it's it it's not there doesn't seem to be much benefit in terms of the ability to get pregnant. It, there is a benefit in terms of for those who do get pregnant. They do get better pregnancy outcomes, however. Yeah, that would make yeah that would make sense. And 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 has there been any um, new research or, or any research on uh, how someone loses weight? From what I'm hearing you say, if for natural conception without fertility treatment, um, weight loss is effective, but for fertility treatment not. Does it matter how you lose the weight? Gastric bypass versus diet. Um, no. So the, the two trials that have, uh, as, that have addressed this question in, uh, couple, in, in women who are undergoing fertility treatment, they tried two very different approaches. One uh, was more of a, a standard uh, calorie reduction with making all your portions smaller, but even a lot less. The other one was a much more intense intervention in terms of calorie restriction and was a, 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 they, they uh, women who participated in the active arm were given uh, liquid diets uh, for around 700 calories per day. So it's a very, very severe calorie restriction. And in neither, uh, in neither trial, this was effective. Um, there have been some uh, studies looking at, uh, not trials, but a handful of case reports um, looking at what happens to women who lose weight uh, through bariatric surgery and then go on to fertility treatment, and the literature is very mixed on whether or not that is a good idea. Um, uh, and but so so there's not a clear consensus on on where on whether how you lose weight matters. Um, there um, there have been some studies among women with PCOS um, looking at whether or not different diets make a difference, right? So if you have like a standard uh, diet with fewer calories versus if you have like a low protein or low carbohydrate diet or things like this, um, does it make a difference? And, and the answer is no. Okay. And the most important thing is to lose weight in the in the PCOS context, not so much how you lose it. Okay. And uh, we'll be talking further um, uh, later on about specifics on food and diet. Um, right. <clears throat> there's a lot of interest now in the human microbiome and how it affects really all parts of our lives including our fertility. Um, and uh, we know, in fact, we have a, a course on this about uh, how the uh, microbiome in the reproductive tract impacts fertility. Um, so we know that the microbiome, we know that our reproductive tracts are full of uh, microorganisms. Um, so do we know anything about uh, what type of, of diet is effective at maintaining a healthy balance within the microbiomes in our reproductive tract. I mean, they're different from, they're not necessarily connected to our, our intestinal tract, which of course is also full of microbiotics. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's actually a fascinating question. So, and everybody seems to be interested in, in understanding the microbiome these days, where it is the gut microbiome, 
or microbiome specific organs. Um, so uh, we we actually just started a study looking at this, um, looking at um, whether or not uh, what might impact uh, the reproductive tract microbiome and to what extent that might explain differences um, across um, in, in success rates in, in women who are undergoing fertility treatment. So there is some emerging evidence suggesting that the um, uh, vaginal and uh, microbiome and the microbiome rec recovered from transfer catheters from women undergoing uh, assisted reproduction may be different between women who succeed and women who do not succeed in the, uh, based uh, uh, on assisted reproduction. And there's also some evidence suggesting that the microbiome may also differ uh, among women who are experiencing problems with fertility uh, according to their primary infertility diagnosis. Um, what's not clear is um, uh, what are the, uh, to what extent lifestyle or environmental factors might be able to impact that microbiome and whether or not you could intervene uh, and change either directly or indirectly the microbiome. So um, I, I, I think this is, this is an area where we're just starting to uh, dip our toes into. Um, but we'll be learning a lot more in the next five to 10 years, I would say. Yeah, I bet we will. It's a, it's a really hot area for research right now. Let me pause for a moment to remind you that this show is brought to you in part through the generous support of our partners. These are organizations and clinics that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. We could not be doing what we do without their support, and we thank them. One such partner is Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions. Cooper Surgical Fertility and Genomic Solutions are global leaders in IVF and reproductive genetics. Cooper Genomics offers PGTA, PGTM, PGTSR, and ERP, which is an endometrial receptivity testing for those who are pursuing IVF. Cooper Genomics genetics tests screen an embryo's genetic health to help your care team select the best embryo for transfer and improve your chances for achieving a successful pregnancy. Part two, what foods and diet are best for enhancing fertility? All right, we've talked about uh, in part one, how does nutrition impact fertility and how does body weight <clears throat> impact fertility, as well as is there anything that we, the research is showing us as far as uh, how to improve the uh, reproductive tract microbiome. Uh, now I want to talk about uh, what research is showing about specific foods or diets that are best for enhancing fertility. And I, and I mean both natural fertility as well as the fertility of those going through fertility treatment. Um, and then we'll, we'll circle back to talking about what the research is showing about what we should actively be avoiding. So what uh, I know that you have done a tremendous amount of research in this area. So generally speaking, what are we supposed to be eating or what are we supposed to be uh, uh, eating and, and consuming? Uh, what type of diet should we be following if we want to give ourselves the highest chances either at a natural conception or, or through fertility treatment? Sure. So, so I generally like to focus on the things that have been consistent uh, across studies and across outcomes. So there's things that, that seem to be equally good both for uh, couples who are trying on their own um, that on the male end appear to improve semen quality and uh, that also appear to be beneficial in couples undergoing uh, infertility treatments. So one of the things that has been most consistent throughout is, um, is the, how, how, how omega-3 fatty acids in particular, um, uh, omega-3 fatty acids it's of marine origin, so the ones that you would get from fish, the ones that are the, the longer fatty acids, which are uh, EPA and DHA, uh, how they um, appear to be beneficial across the spectrum. So there's there's quite a bit of literature on uh, on the male end uh, showing uh, both that uh, consumption of fish seems to be related to better semen quality. Um, that uh, randomized trials uh, where men are supplemented with fish oil um, also and show that men uh, supplemented with fish oil end up having better semen quality. 
and um, and that it doesn't necessarily have to be fish oil. So another source uh, for those who do not like fish, another source of omega-3 fatty acids that's quite important are nuts. So there have been several uh, randomized trials with nuts uh, in the past few years showing that you see very similar effects um, when uh, men are supplemented with nuts um, on their uh, on on sperm parameters. So so uh, in addition to that, um, we have seen that among couples who are undergoing fertility treatment, uh, women who have higher blood levels of omega-3 fatty acids, which is is a marker of essentially of their intake, uh, do have better uh, outcomes. They're more likely to have live birth than women with lower levels, and this is um, for the most part reflecting their intake of fish um, in in this part of the country. So, so we know that the um, do we know that the the uh, the fatty the, the higher levels of omega-3 fatty acid in the blood is is coming from marine sources so when you when you find omega-3 long chain omega-3 fatty acids in your blood there's only two ways that they could have gotten there one is you ate them right and that's that's the most straightforward way and the only way in which you could have eaten them is if you ate fish there's not a way there's not a natural source for you to eat them either fish or or creole or some other uh, uh, marine source of major fatty acids. You could also convert them from uh, lower, uh, uh, from shorter chain uh, omega-3 fatty acids. So from uh, plant sources of omega-3 fatty acids, uh, which include nuts, which some oils uh, and uh, flaxseed and things like these. But the, the conversion of uh, shorter chain omega-3 fatty acids to longer chain omega-3 fatty acids is fairly inefficient in humans. Um, so for the most part, if you see uh, omega-3 fatty acids, long-chain omega-3 fatty acids in someone's blood or adipose tissue or wherever, it's because they ate them. Um, so, it, so that's why they can be, for the most part, interpreted as a marker of intake. Okay, fascinating. Okay, so <clears throat> apparently there's good research that would indicate that Increased uh, consumption of fish and, and nuts, perhaps, uh, are, are good for both men and women. Men and women. And we've seen that both in men and women, both men uh, in the general population, as well as men in couples from uh, uh, presenting to fertility treatment. We've seen the benefit of live births um, on women undergoing fertility treatment. And we have also seen something similar among couples trying on their own. So comparing when both partners um, consume fish at least uh, twice per week, um, we see their chances of uh, their, their times of pregnancy being much, much shorter uh, than the times of pregnancy of couples where, where, where neither one is them, of them is consuming fish. And it translates to about a 10% lower risk of uh, having times of pregnancy greater than 12 months, which is uh, the definition of infertility. So it seems to be quite a, a, a remarkable effect size in terms of, um, of both consistency and being able to impact a wide range of outcomes that are relevant for both men and women. Just out of curiosity, um, has there been research on vegans to say whether they have a lower overall fertility rate? Not that I'm aware of. So studying, studying vegetarianism and veganism is actually very difficult because people, uh, even though there are technical definitions of what a vegetarian is and what a vegan is, not everybody understands the same when they, when they say they are vegetarian or vegan. And, and, and the clearest example of that is from my own personal, my own personal experience. My, I, I come from, um, I, I was born and I, I raised in Colombia in South America which is a very uh, high uh, meat-eating country. We, we eat a lot of beef. Um, so um, I probably eat a tenth of the beef that I used to eat when I was younger. Um, <laughs> but you eat beef every single day. So when people in Colombia say they're vegetarian, what they usually mean is that they don't eat beef, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't eat meat. 
So if somebody says vegetarian, they say, oh, don't worry, we have chicken and we have fish. You're fine because yeah. uh, that's so. So it, across many different contexts, what what it means to be vegetarian or vegan or lacto vegetarian or over vegetarian or it, not everybody understands the same way. So it's very difficult to study in large populations. Um, that said, one thing that that um, uh, I'm very happy you asked me about vegans because it gives me the opportunity to talk about something else that, that has been quite in, quite important um, in fertility is that as all vegans know, one thing that they have to be aware of is vitamin B12 deficiency um, because the only, so uh, most of us get uh, our vitamin B12 by eating uh, meat. But if you do not eat any meat or any animal products, you do not have any natural sources of vitamin B12 in your diet. And the problem with that is that vitamin B12 and other nutrients related to vitamin B12, including vitamin B6 and folic acid, are part of this metabolic pathway called the one carbon metabolism, which among other things is in charge of uh, producing the building blocks of DNA and of producing uh, and of methylating DNA, meaning um, uh, putting the, the reading code on top of DNA. So it's extremely, extremely important for DNA production, which means that it's extremely, extremely important for gametogenesis um, and, uh, and for cell division. Uh, so on the male end, if you need to be replacing your entire population of sperm approximately every three months, being able to have a steady supply of, of DNA is critically important. And on, and on the couple end of things, once you, um, the, once you have a fertilized egg, it's not gonna be able to have, to produce its own machinery to um, actively incorporate either folate or B6 or B12 into, its, into, into the cells. Uh, until its own genome is activated. So whatever was was whatever folate B6 and B12 was in the egg was absorbed through, through mothers in the egg. That's what that embryo is going to have for to support all cell divisions during the first three to five uh, days of embryonic life. Um, so those nutrients are critically critically important for um, for I, for both spermatogenesis on the male end and for supporting the embryo through the first uh, few days of life, uh, which is important in history reproduction, but uh, it may also be what underlies some causes of infertility that get identified as unexplained infertility or recurring pregnancy loss or things like this. And so that's, that is B12, which we know we can get through meat. Um, does all meat have the same amount? Um, is there some meat that is uh, higher in, in the... B12, B6, folic acid, well, just let's say B12. B12. So, no, you don't have to be that picky about B12. And one thing that that is quite fortunate is that you don't have to actually eat that much meat to, or you don't have to eat meat, that meat at all to do B12. Uh, most prenatal supplements include B12. So some, um, some strict vegans will uh, uh, actually not use standard prenatal supplements because of that that B12 came from an animal product, but there are ways around that. So, um, so there there are ways to get B12 uh, through supplements that are okay for vegans, and most prenatal supplements will include a combination of uh, folic acid, B6, and B12. Um, and what most prenatal multivitamins include are within the intake levels of um, uh, that that would be uh, that that would be required for sustaining both spermatogenesis on the male end and for sustaining the embryo through its first uh, few days of life. Okay, and let's talk protein in general. Yep. There was some research a long time ago uh, that was indicating that higher percentage when your diet has a higher percentage of protein, it enhanced. And I honestly don't remember now whether it was, I think it was women, I think it was people going, women's fertility going, women's success rate going through IVF. Have that, has that been substantiated? Do we know uh, what type of, what percentage uh, of protein? We'll talk about the type of protein here in a minute, but um, how much protein should you be aiming for when you are trying to get pregnant naturally or 
when you are going through fertility treatment. So I, I, I know exactly what study you you uh, you were talking about because I was um, this was a, an abstract that was presented at ASRM. Yep. And I, and I was uh, one of the moderators in that session. <laughs> so I remember it. I, I remember it quite well. So uh, we. And I was in the audience. <laughs> oh, you uh, okay? Perfect. Yeah. So so I I know exactly which one. Um, and, and it was it was a very interesting study. So this came from from a group that's very much hands on on advising their patients on their diets. And they I, I can't remember the exact uh, amount, but they recommended fairly um, high intakes of protein uh, to their patients. And what they presented at ASRM was was uh, quite quite interesting and intriguing, uh, by the way. So we waited and waited to see that paper published, and that paper was never published uh, as a as a peer reviewed journal, uh, as a peer reviewed article. Huh. Uh, um, so we decided to take a look at, in, in our data. We published uh, last year, looking at different protein sources um, and uh, protein amounts in relation to outcomes of infertility treatment. What we found was that as a whole, uh, protein didn't matter that much. And when so, and when you look at type or quantity, uh, quantity. Okay. And when you start looking at at, at the source, uh, at major sources of protein, uh, there were only a handful of things that that stood out. So one uh, was fish, which we've talked about. Yeah. Right. So if you were if you were if you were higher in your protein intake because you were eating a lot of fish, then it did matter. But it didn't seem to be an effective protein. But it was the fish itself. Um, the other source was something we had published before, was when we were getting at, at, at uh, a category that we called beans and legumes, uh-huh. right? So that seemed to make some difference. Um, but interestingly, uh, it, the, mo- the most of the association was because of intake of soy, which is something that gets a lot of uh, comment uh, on the blogosphere uh, uh, on how it might relate to fertility. Mm-hmm. And what we and others have found is actually that uh, either soy, which we looked at soy foods, and others who have done randomized trials of soy supplements, um, what we find is that it's actually uh, beneficial. It improves live births uh, in women undergoing uh, assisted reproduction, which is kind of the opposite of what you see in the lay literature. Uh, but other than fish and soy, and to a lesser extent, other legumes and, be- uh, and, and, and nuts, there didn't seem to be much on protein making a big difference. There were some equivocal findings when we looked at red meat intake. So um, if, when it was modeled in one way, it looked like it was beneficial, but if you modeled intake a different way, it didn't. So we reported on like, we, it, it's, there, there's, not, there's definitely not a clear signal of either harm or benefit with red meat um, or with other types of food. So there didn't seem to be a clear signal with dairy as a source of protein, with, uh, with uh, uh, chicken or other poultry as a source of protein. And the, on, the only clear signals were with fish and with soy. And then you're not clear whether that's the protein itself or the type of protein, or the other, other factors in the, um, um, in the soy or the uh, fish. Correct, but so with the fish, it may be the case that it has absolutely nothing to do with the with the protein itself, but rather with the omega three fatty acids that we have discussed before. And on on a practical level, this doesn't really matter, right? If it's the protein and you're eating the fish, then you get benefit. If it's the omega three fatty acids and you're getting and you're eating the fish, you're still getting benefit. So, as a as on, on a practical standpoint, it doesn't matter that much. Same thing with with the soy, right? So what, what we have been able to study is soy food intake. Uh, and and if, it's, if it happens to be the soy protein itself, uh, then fine, and you're getting the, 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 um, the benefit from eating soy protein. The other groups that have studied soy have used um, soy supplements, specifically isoflavone supplements. So extracting the um, phytoestrogens out of soy and using that as a supplement. And those seem to be beneficial both for couples undergoing infertility treatment with ART or with IUI. Um, so if it, is the, if it is the phytoestrogens itself that are beneficial, uh, then you'll get the benefit whether it, whether it is as a food or whether it is, uh, or if it's a protein, you would still get the benefit 
um, as uh, by eating as a food. So what about carbs? Uh, you know, we hear uh, it's the uh, the total talk of the town, yeah. um, and the as you call it, the uh, the blogosphere. It's certainly mm -hmm. um, the internet is full of talk about uh, low carb or uh, processed carbs or complex mm -hmm. carbs. What does the research show as far as uh, the intake of carbs or, or perhaps the percentage of carbs in your diet? And does it matter whether it's simple carbohydrates or complex carbohydrates? Great. So, so again, thanks for asking that one because that's another area where there has been somewhat of a consistent literature, uh, both for uh, men, uh, couples trying on their own, and, and couples undergoing fertility treatment. Um, so uh, let's start with uh, couples trying on their own this time. Um, um, so that was one of our earliest publications where we looked at carbohydrate quality and quantity in relation to um, infertility due to ovulation problems. What, what we found back then was that um, women with a higher glycemic load, meaning that they had either a very high carbohydrate intake or modest carbohydrate intake, but most of these carbohydrates were coming from rapidly digestible carbohydrates. Uh, they had about twice the risk of having infertility due to ovulation problems than women with uh, the low in the lowest end of um, of glycemic load intake. Um, there, this uh, has been recently reproduced uh, in another cohort of pregnancy planners. Now, this time looking at type of pregnancy as opposed to specific causes of, of infertility. They also see that um, low, uh, uh, better quality carbohydrates, not necessarily the total amount of carbohydrates, but having carbo uh, a, a better quality carbohydrates, meaning lower glycemic carbohydrates, more fiber, less uh, rapidly digested sugar also seems to be beneficial for fertility. And it has also been seen for uh, men in studies looking at uh, semen quality as an outcome. Um, so we know that the, 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 the main contributor to uh, glycemic load are rapidly digested sugars, right? So added sugars and the top, uh, and one of the top uh, contributors to added sugars are sugar sweetened beverages. Um, and uh, there's been, there's now a growing body of research showing that sugar sweetened beverages are related to lower semen quality. Uh, and and it's, in some studies, it, lows, it shows lower count. In other studies, it shows lower motility, but definitely not good for, for semen quality. And um, there have been some studies looking at, 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 at uh, fertility in couples right on their own that have found that both um, the male partner intake and the female partner intake of sugar sweetened beverages is deleterious to fertility independently of each other. So both, um, um, so it, it, uh, at least sugar, sugar beverages are definitely not a good idea for fertility, whether it is on the male end or the female end. And when we looked in couples um, undergoing fertility treatment, again, the same story appears, the same pattern. So in, so even though the total amount of carbohydrates doesn't seem to be that make that much of a difference within the, the ranges of intake that we're that we see in people in Boston. The quality of carbohydrate does seem to matter. So the more whole grains um, uh, that uh, that are part of, of total carbohydrates, the better outcomes of infertility treatment. Well, what about then if you rather than um, <clears throat> sugar sweetened sodas or, or what about shifting to diet sodas where you're using, uh, where they would use artificial sweeteners? So, so that's a, that's a great question. So we've, um, we've, there, there is not a lot of uh, research on artificially uh, sweetened beverages. Um, there's, um, so one of our really, uh, uh, one, of our, one of our first papers, we looked at these uh, because we were interested in, in uh, caffeine, actually. We were looking at different sources of caffeine, and uh, we ended up looking also at uh, sodas as, uh, as one of these sources of caffeine. And in that study, what we see is that, uh, the, that sodas, so sugar sodas, did appear to have a deleterious effect on, on fertility, um, but that the association with sugar sodas was very similar to the association with diet sodas. 
Um, but that hasn't been always the, the, the case in, across studies. So I would say that, um, that there, there always isn't, there, there's not, there hasn't been as consistent literature with diet sodas as there has been with sugared sodas. And um, uh, in principle, if the, if the culprit is sugar itself, uh, that should work. So, however, one of uh, one of my one of the people with whom I collaborate often is uh, in the group examining environmental chemicals and environmental contaminants. And one thing that uh, sugared sodas and diet sodas share is packaging. Um, and uh, several of the of the shared packaging are known sources of environmental chemicals that are known to impact fertility. Interesting. Uh, so <clears throat> you could always do water. That's a, I was that's just going to say, at this point, you can't <laughs> win for losing. That, that can be yeah. The, yeah. the best replacement. Well, okay, but let's talk about another drink then. And there's some, um, for me, it was fairly interesting research, and that is consumption of whole milk products. And, and I, if I remember correctly from the research, it didn't hold over. It's not just the dairy product itself because mm -hmm. it didn't hold over when we were looking at low fat or skim. Yeah. Has that held up in the research? That, that, that has been one of the most inconsistent ones. Yeah, so <laughs> we, again, okay. that was one of the first things that we published. So um, again, it was this uh, in, our, in our initial study looking at infertility due to an ovulation as, as the main outcome. And what we found back then was that women who had higher intake of, of high fat dairy foods, and this was primarily whole milk, uh, had a lower risk of infertility due to an ovulation. Uh, but the opposite was true for low fat dairy. So, and low fat dairy was primarily intake of skim milk, and they seemed to have the exact opposite relation. It was a real, it was a real head scratcher. It was to, a head scratcher. That's a good right, way to put it. It was a total head scratcher. It was like how. I was like, did I, did I, are we sure we coded this thing correctly? So it was <laughs> months of going back, making sure we had made no mistakes before we actually had to put it in paper and and uh, and say, yes, here's my name attached to this finding. <laughs> um, but I mean, we just, no matter what we did, that that was the finding. Now we have kept on on the story of dairy, and it's very very inconsistent across across outcomes. So uh, we've 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 revisited the dairy story looking at semen quality and it's not consistent. So we've, we've, we've looked at it in three studies now uh, in three different populations and we, and our findings are different in each of the three populations. Uh, so there, so it's, it's, it's not consistent at all in relation to semen quality. Um, it has been looked in relation to time to pregnancy on couples uh, trying to get pregnant. And again, it's not as there. There doesn't seem to be as clear a relationship with time to pregnancy, and this distinction between low-fat versus high-fat dairy uh, doesn't seem to hold out. We looked at it in relation to um, outcomes of infertility treatment, and we do see some benefit, but for low-fat milk, not for skin milk. So it's it's it has been very. Oh, and the last one we did was for ovarian reserve. We looked at. Uh, uh, the intake of dairy in relation to ovarian reserve. And then it was uh, dairy intake itself was related to lower, uh, to poor ovarian reserve. And it didn't really matter what type of dairy were in, it was dairy as a whole. So I, I think that dairy is, is a, has been a very, very uh, inconsistent story throughout the literature. So, so jury is still out, is that what you're telling us? I, yeah, I think I think the jury is still out and, and at this pace it's gonna be it's still gonna be out for a while. <laughs> um, yeah. You mentioned caffeine. Um, yeah. What do we know about caffeine consumption and fertility? Well, um, that one should you, you would you would expect that that one should be pretty clear. So definitely caffeine has been one of the most studied um, fa nutritional factors in relation to fertility. Uh, the problem has been that until fairly recently, um, there there has been a, a, a pervasive problem with study design on studies looking at uh, uh, caffeine and fertility. Um, so the typical study has been you uh, and and we should, has been going to the fertility clinic and then asking women about their diets or did you drink coffee um, uh, over the last year. 
something like that during a specific time frame. Yeah. And uh, as, as you're well aware, people who are undergoing infertility treatment or facing fertility problems, they, they, they are excellent study participants because they remember everything. They're very, very good reporters. Um, <laughs> that they, is so true. Uh, and, um, and they're very aware of even the smallest things they do. So, so if you have an open-ended question, it's like, did you drink coffee? It's like, sure, I drink coffee. Like five weeks ago, I drank a week a cup of coffee, and I drink it again. But if it becomes a yes/no answer, and you, you you have no choice but to report yes, and then then the investigators would go to the labor and delivery room, and somebody has just had a baby. It's like, did you drink coffee? It's like, I don't know if I drink coffee. I, I have a baby, so. So, so if that is the information that you're collecting, you're all but guaranteed to find an association between coffee drinking and infertility. So as more high quality studies have started to accrue, the, the association between coffee and fertility has become more questionable. Um, so there's, um, if you look at the, uh, at the more recent higher quality studies, most of them report absolutely no relationship between uh, caffeine intake and either uh, semen quality parameters. They're, they make absolutely no difference. Um, no, the, there doesn't seem to be a relationship with time to pregnancy either. There doesn't seem to be a relationship with uh, success in ART setting. Um, we we uh, we collaborated with a group in Israel uh, recently, uh, which where we did a, a really interesting study because. Uh, unlike the United States, in Israel, there's not the social bias towards drinking coffee during pregnancy. Um, so people continue to drink coffee throughout infertility treatment. Um, and what we found uh, in this study in Israel is that coffee drink made absolutely no difference um, in, uh, uh, in terms of infertility treatment outcomes but there was only one caffeinated beverage that made a difference, which was sugared sodas. Um, and so we think that it was the sugar and not the soda, uh, and not the caffeine, not caffeine, yeah, right? That made the difference. And uh, recently, a, a, a couple of months ago, there was another study published in Fertility and Sterility, looking again at a different population with a, with, that doesn't share the same biases around caffeine um, that we have. So these was couples undergoing fertility treatment in Denmark. And what they see is absolutely nothing. So couples um, uh, undergoing fertility treatment in Denmark, coffee seems to make no difference whatsoever. And when they look separately at couples who are doing IBF versus IUI, um, the couples doing IUI actually seem to do a little better when they drink coffee than, than the couples who do not drink coffee. So I, I think if you look at, if you not only look at the, the headcount, right, when you count papers and, and say, well, what's their conclusion, but you also take into account the quality of, of the studies and whether or not they've been thoughtful about designing their study, it, it, it has become less clear whether or not uh, coffee is deleterious to fertility. Um, and th there is one big exception, though which is that uh, coffee does seem to be related to uh, miscarriage. Um, uh, in, couples, um, in couples who get pregnant on their own. Um, so the, the question is, well, if this is true, um, what, how does it, so it doesn't impact your ability to get pregnant, but it may increase likely the chance of losing a pregnancy. Um, so how do you balance those two things? And uh, the studies that have identified problems with uh, pregnancy loss, most of them suggest that the, um, that the deleterious effect of caffeine starts right around the time that they recommend the intake um, that ACOG and other organizations suggest as the maximum level of intake for um, for um, uh, women who are pregnant or trying to get pregnant, which is around 300 milligrams of coffee, uh, of caffeine per day. So roughly two to three cups of coffee per day. So the, the, the risk appears to, have, to happen beyond that intake, but not before that. Okay, that's interesting. So again, it would go back to fairly moderate coffee consumption. Correct. 
Let me pause for a moment to remind you that this show is brought to you in part through the generous support of our partners. These are organizations and clinics that believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. We could not be doing what we do without their support, and we thank them. One such partner is Reproductive Medicine Associates of New York. They are a full-service fertility center specializing in in vitro fertilization, egg donation, egg and embryo freezing, LGBTQIA family building, reproductive surgeries, and male reproductive medicine. Highly individualized patient care is offered through 13 reproductive endocrinologists and fertility specialists and a urologist as well as a full support team. By combining the latest innovations in reproductive sciences with compassionate and customized treatment plans, RMA of New York is able to provide the very best possible care. All right, and uh, and part one, we talked about how nutrition and weight impact fertility, and part two, we dug into the specifics of what food and diet uh, uh, are best for enhancing fertility. And now in part three, I want to talk about uh, what supplements are effective at improving fertility. Uh, uh, Again, the uh, blogosphere is full of uh, information about supplements that uh, women and men should take if they're wanting to get pregnant. And uh, and it even it, it ratchets up even more uh, when people are in fertility treatment and are truly googling and trying to find information. So I want to talk with about the impact of supplements for people conceiving naturally, and the impact of supplements for people undergoing fertility treatment. Um, we've already talked about the importance of prenatal vitamins, so we won't spend much time on that. Let's talk about, uh, I think that that's pretty much universally uh, agreed now that you should be on a prenatal vitamin. Let's talk about some of the of the other potential supplements. Uh, you mentioned the importance of vitamin B12. Uh, now that is included, generally speaking, in prenatal vitamins. Is, uh, is this a case where uh, if a little, which is included in your prenatal vitamin, is good, a little bit more might be better. Should women considering pregnancy or undergoing infertility treatment uh, supplement with additional vitamin B12? Uh, the the answer is I don't know. <laughs> so the there's so like coffee and uh, micronutrient supplements have been uh, investigated a lot. There's tons of randomized trials among infertile couples reporting the effects of this supplement or that supplement. The main, and so much of there's been uh, two Cochrane reviews uh, on the effects of... Uh, of uh, two what type of reviews, did you say? Uh, Co- uh, the, from, from the Cochrane collaboration. Gotcha. So um, reviewing the effects of, um, they're, they're called antioxidants, although these, they're not really all antioxidants. They're mainly... Uh, micronutrient supplementation in both male fertility and uh, female fertility, and what they mean is among couples who are undergoing fertility treatment. Um, and they, they they come to the conclusion that, yes, there's a lot of trials out there, but they all share one problem. It means that pretty much every single trial that's out there um, has, uh, has been done because somebody is promoting their own uh, supplement, right? Yeah, so exactly. Run the trial and they say, okay, uh, if the main purpose of the trial is say, well, the supplement A that I'm going to sell at $100 a bottle or whatever mm-hmm. um, uh, work, yes or no, then you're going to run your study a certain way. You may run, you might compare it against placebo as opposed to something that you, which is not something you would necessarily do in real life, right? You would, if for a couple who's trying to get pregnant, you would not give them a placebo. You would at least give them the minimum recommendations for micronutrient supplementation to support pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And second of all, because everybody's interested in their own um, blend of supplements, um, it is really not possible to, to identify what are the effects of any one individual nutrient. Um, so I think that the, the, for both the, in both the male review and the female review, what they find is that if you pull the data across all of these trials together, 
you do see a signal, and there does seem that supplementing both men and women with uh, with a micronutrient supplement can be beneficial for uh, improving fertility treatment outcomes. The problems are that in either review, there's no two trials that are actually testing the exact same intervention. So there's no two trials that are testing the exact same thing. So you cannot tell, well, what is it exactly in the supplements that's helping, right? And second, um, so and because you you because you do not have uh, these these exact same two trials, you it, it becomes really really difficult to uh, to define. Well, maybe the best supplement is something that has uh, these things or that things. And so you cannot tell what are the things that are that are working, but you can also not things what are you can also not identify what are the components of these supplements that are doing nothing or maybe harmful, right? So you're just seeing the average effect across many different supplements across many different trials, none of which are to, uh, none of which are the same one to the other. So the 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 optimistic view is. Um, we know something works. We just don't know what it is, right? Um, and our job is to try to figure out what is it that that's that's helping. So um, we've talked a little bit about already the one carbon metabolism, so folate, B12, and B6. Um, and I think that the evidence is actually uh, growing in strength, supporting uh, a role for both folate and B12 in particular, in having a very very important role in females specifically. Um, so you would think, well, if, if I'm already taking a, a multivitamin, which already has folate, already has B12. Right, because most prenatals do. Right. prenatals do. Then how is this important to me? And what we've been able to find is that even within, even within the range of intake among couples undergoing fertility treatment, we do see that slightly different doses of folic acid and B12 do uh, make a difference. Uh, in terms of who is more successful versus not. Now, to, to, to clarify this question, what we need is another trial testing different doses of uh, folic acid and different doses of B12 to see what are our findings or, uh, uh, stand up to the ultimate um, test of, of, uh, of whether or not they're true. Um, but they, they definitely are suggestive. There's I think it's also important to um, mention what are the things that are unlikely to make more benefit, uh, right? That are, that are unlikely to help you much more in terms of fertility. And one of them is a, is a very popular vitamin, which is vitamin D. Um, so there has, there has now uh, accrued a, a fairly consistent literature looking at the effects of vitamin D on reproduction. So most of the initial literature on, on animal reproduction and looking at the, at the underlying biology has shown that vitamin D is actually crucial for reproduction. Mm -hmm. So if you're completely deficient, then, um, then you do definitely need, so uh, vitamin D deficiency is not consistent with reproduction. You do need vitamin D for reproduction. Uh, and but but what, how do we define deficient? Isn't that kind of, there so lies the rub. That, that is one of the things. Um, but um, you focus specifically on, on studies among couples undergoing ART, which is where there's actually a surprising amount of research. Um, what, what the literature has shown is that when, when you use uh, either the IOM or the Endocrine Society cutoffs for uh, deficiency, it doesn't matter which one it is, um, you do see a benefit of vitamin, of, of vitamin D when you're comparing uh, women who are deficient versus women who are not, right? Meaning if you have really low stores of vitamin, uh, of vitamin D, it probably makes a difference. It probably makes sense to have a vitamin D supplement and get your levels beyond the, the very low thresholds. But when you look at couples who are within the, within the replete range of, of serum vitamin D, there doesn't seem to be much more benefit to gain, right? So you may you may gain in terms of other potential benefits, but probably not in terms of reproduction. So again, if if you if 
you get screened and get identified as vitamin D deficient or insufficient, then it probably, vitamin D probably makes sense. If you're within the normal range already, getting additional vitamin D above and beyond what you would normally be getting from diet plus sun or any other supplements you may be taking is probably not going to make much more difference in terms of reproduction. Okay, let's talk about fish oil. You've talked about the importance of fish for mm-hmm. people who do not eat two or three servings of fish. And let's be honest, it needs to be the high fatty fish to really get the most value out of it. Mm-hmm. Then we run into problems with contaminants and, and metals and things such as that. So for people who are um, wanting to increase and get the uh, omega-6 fatty acids uh, of fish, does fish oil supplementation uh, help? So the, the best evidence on that uh, we have on that is on the male end. And on the male end, we do know that uh, um, uh, fish oil supplements do have equivalent, uh, an equivalent effect of fish itself. And if anything, they might do a, a little better oh. than, than fish itself. So, so fish oil supplements work really, really well on men in terms of improving skin quality. Um, the, uh, on, on the female end, there's less data at the moment, right? So for example, some of the randomized trials, including the Cochrane review, were fish oil trials. But uh, there's so few fish oil trials on exclusively that it's hard to tell whether or not the fish oil specifically, as opposed to other things, as opposed, uh, uh, as opposed to other things that might be including in supplements that include uh, fish oil as part of the formulation, uh, yeah. might be the thing that's going to trick. Okay, what about CoQ10? Again, CoQ10, there's lots of evidence on the male end uh, in that it improves semen quality. Uh, so if, if that's target, that's fine. Uh, there are no trials uh, looking at CoQ10 on the male end um, with uh, live birth or pregnancy as the outcome. So you, mean the fem- you mean the female end, didn't you? Both male and female, right? Oh. Uh, so because it's, um, in in on on the trials that have been done on males, include trials that look at semen quality as the outcome. Those are the most common, but there's also trials where the man is being supplemented, but not the woman, uh, to look at couple outcomes, right? To say, well, does supplementing the man with uh, fish oil or a multivitamin or whatever impacts the couples? ability to become pregnant. And the same, you're speaking of CoQ10 as well. So it may improve semen quality, but there hasn't been any indication that it improves pregnancy rates in general. Exactly. So, and the the question is, well, to what extent does improving semen quality improves your chance of becoming pregnant? Yeah. And um, and, uh, it turns out it's, it's, it it depends. It depends on how, where do you start? uh, Where do you end? Right, so it, let's say because uh, it's very it's 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 very very different to let's say that you're improving semen uh, quality by an absolute amount. Let say you, you're improving sperm concentration by uh, I don't know 20 million sperm per mil, right? It's okay. very different to start with with five million and go to 25. That's an enormous change than to start with 150 and end up with 175,000. It's the same change. But the person who's definitely going to benefit the most is the, the guy who started with five million to begin with. And probably in the first guy, that's going to make an enormous difference in his chance of fathering a pregnancy. But on, this, on, on the second guy, it probably makes no difference whatsoever. And for women, is there any indication from the, from the research that you've read, and you've read it all, <laughs> is there any indication that, that CoQ10 would be uh, been a supplement that women who are undergoing treatment or trying to conceive naturally. Yeah. So again, it's it's one of those, those I would put in the same bag of we don't know, right? So it's there have been some trials looking at CoQ10 specifically, um, or in combination with other with other antioxidants and other macronutrients. Um, so as a whole, when you put everything in the same bag and say, well, does feeding does giving somebody a pill with some micronutrient help, it's like yes. Is it CoQ10? Well, we don't know, maybe, but we really don't know. Okay. What about, um, and this one may be more controversial than the other ones, uh, DHEA, and I can't pronounce the, uh, the, uh, the scientific, the, the chemical name. Yeah. Um, 
again, I, I, I'm going to seat down that one too, um, because the, for for that one, there's um, I, I think it would it, it, it would still uh, fall in the same bag of we really don't know, and for the most part, um, there many of the trials that have been done looking at this particular supplement, as well as other supplements, have a strong um, have a strong commercial bias. So um, even summarizing the evidence is, is, is difficult. So it leaves us with, uh, with the unfortunate conclusion of saying, well, we know something helps, we just don't know what it is. Okay, so if, uh, what supplements then, uh, we'll, we'll let you have the final say then, what supplements would you recommend other than a basic prenatal vitamin? No, I, I don't think, actually I think nothing. <laughs> I think that um, that most of the benefit will it probably comes from what you would find on a standard prenatal diet, really. Um, even the ones for which we find the strongest evidence, uh, which uh, we think couples undergoing fertility treatment, which are the, the nutrients involved in one carbon metabolism, so folate, B6B12. Um, the, the differences are between going from um, a standard prenatal, a standard multivitamin to um, to a to a standard prenatal or to even a prescription prenatal, which has a little bit more folic acid and a little bit B12. So it's nothing that it's not available already. Uh, and the 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 differences, and so the, getting getting the specific information on. Um, on what's the right dose is something that probably needs to be figured out, but uh, it's not going to happen in the next. It's not going to happen anytime soon. So in the meantime, if you're up to making a decision for yourself today, uh, I think that if you go with a standard uh, prenatal, you're probably just as good and up to date with the science than if you spend uh, hundreds of dollars for something that maybe just same thing, uh, but sold under a different brand. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Jorge Chavarro, who is the Associate Professor of Nutrition and Epidemiology at the Harvard School of Public Health and Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Uh, we really appreciate your, uh, your input and your, and your wisdom and your ability to have uh, dissected and read through all of this research. Um, it was great. Let me remind everyone that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your infertility professional. Thank you guys for listening, and I will see you next week.